Welcome to the Nehemiah Collective Podcast, where we tell the stories of men and women embodying the beautiful future God has for the church and giving us back a holy imagination for all that's possible. My conversation is with Ryan Ramsey. Ryan is a writer and pastor looking to help identify the brokenness in church systems and lead the way forward in healing. Can't wait for us to jump right in. Ryan, how did you get here? What has you advocating for those who have been hurt by church and serving Jesus the way you are? Yeah, it won't surprise you. And it's true for most of us, right? When you find yourself in a place of advocacy, uh, a little bit of activism around these issues, I, I think and write and reflect and talk a lot about religious trauma and spiritual abuse. It's autobiographical. It's part of my story. It's part of my family's story, but it's also a part of the stories of so many other families and individuals that I've connected with in the last five years or so. So I found myself wanting to be a voice, uh, one voice at the table to shine light, but also hopefully speak constructively to the broader discussion happening in the church today around abuse, church too, and religious trauma. Is there like maybe things in your story that put you in that position? So it's got to be personal, right? How would you tell us that story if you could? Yeah, absolutely. I have, I'll keep it fairly high level, but in the last five years, I've resigned personally from two different churches and the saying, fool me once, you know, shame on you, fool me twice. Yeah. So... Different dynamics, different issues, but resigned from a church due to spiritual abuse. And and I resigned from another church due to deeply unhealthy dynamics with leadership. And my wife and I didn't feel like we could stay in in either community. And those are devastatingly hard decisions to walk away because it's not just a job when you're in pastoral ministry, it's you're invested in a community. And so there are deep relationships and friendships and ties that you're choosing to walk away from. In addition to your livelihood, there's massive risk and loss involved to choose to walk away. And yet we felt like we had to in two different circumstances. So yeah, a lot of what I think and reflect about today and when I support families today, it's coming out of personal, personal loss. Yeah. So what was it about that season that, or what was the process of coming up? the other side of that season and choosing to stay and to advocate for the church and to call people to be a part of the healing process. Because we have a lot of people with legitimate pain and anger and disillusionment who have said, I can never go back. I feel like you do a great job of naming the pain and the broken structure, but there is this part of it. But it sounds like you still want people to stay and you've stayed yourself. How did that happen? Sure. Yeah. And even as we say that, what does it mean that I've chosen to stay? And what are we, what do we mean by stay? I think it it is important for me personally and for my family to continue to speak as followers of Jesus and to speak as Christians. And we don't apologize for that. I certainly want to give people hope who are walking away from a faith setting, particularly a Christian faith setting, that you can still follow Jesus and you can still experience the goodness of the body of Christ, even after you walk away. But I also want to clarify that I do leave a lot of room for nuance and mystery and patience when it comes to people deciding if they want to invest in an institution again. I I think there's a distinction there because you can experience the body of Christ beautifully and not be currently committed to 
an institution or a church. And, and that's a process for everyone to figure out whether or not they can invest there or if they want to experience the body of Christ in a different way that doesn't necessarily look like a 501c3 institution with a building. I, I do leave a lot of room for imagination there. Yeah, that's beautiful. I feel like that goes against the grain of everything I was taught growing up. I was told to be afraid that the minute I don't want to be a part of an organized church, I'm bound to lose my faith. What would you say to that? Yeah, yeah. It's interesting because it's if, if you grew up in evangelicalism, and I did, but especially conservative evangelicalism, they make that marriage between if you have faith in Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus, you must be a member at a local church. And yes. and what they mean by that is important. And uh, for those of us who come out of real rupture uh, mm-hmm. or abuse, we started to disentangle a little bit the the problems that come with institution institutional commitment yeah. and institutional loyalty. And I don't use the word deconstruction much, but one of the things many of us are doing who still follow Jesus is we're actually seeing the real problems that many Christian institutions have. And so when we hear you must commit to a local church or institution, a lot of us today are saying, we won't do that anymore if it means this and this and this, if it means these terms and conditions, if it means unconditional loyalty to leadership, regardless of accountability. So yeah, I think a lot of us are just pressing pause on what it means for us to think about institutional commitments, but what we're still longing and yearning and dreaming together about participating in the body of Christ. It's an interesting place to be, right? Yeah, it is. To me, it feels like something the prophets often did. They would call out the brokenness of the institution and look towards a fulfillment of something better. And there's a prophetic way to do that, where you can Mm -hmm. say, there's something about this I can't give myself to as a witness and then as a demonstration of wanting something better. Yes. I feel like that's what you're calling people to, which I think is powerful. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's important to flip some of these phrases and terms that we hear all the time on their head. So you often hear people say, Jesus loves the church. How could you walk away from it? How could you even think about leaving it? And I hear that today and I think, of course he loves the church and the church includes those of us who've been abused by pastors and leaders. And so Jesus loves the people who've been battered and crushed, who can't figure out where to go anymore, who've lost their community. Jesus loves them as much as he loves whatever you mean by church, if you mean institutions, or we have to be, we have to be careful about who we're talking about. Yeah, that's so good. It's not to be too punchy. Maybe it's not at all, but it's like that phrase is used to not own up to the broken parts of the institution or uh-huh. a scare tactic for a lot of people uh-huh. I feel like sometimes. And that's not helpful. Right. right. Those people are still right. in church. Right. Yeah, exactly. Many of us have, have been discipled, taught, trained to just white knuckle uh, commitment in a local church and just stick, stick it, stay put as though, as though staying is the highest virtue. Staying in the institution is the highest virtue. And I think what a lot of us have found is there are some lines that need to be drawn. When we're talking about leadership and character and abuse, there are some real lines that need to be drawn when we think about commitment and loyalty. And yeah, frankly, that's all many of us, that's all we're saying is Mm -hmm. we have to draw lines somewhere here. It's really good. What would you 
offer as like a starting point for someone who is trying to do the work of healing or even understanding what they just went through. If they've left after a rupture of some kind or for whatever reason, it's a bit general, but do you, there's a few things they could do to start moving into a healing place. Yeah. In some ways, I think the stages of grief are helpful to think about for those of us, especially in the immediate aftermath uh, of that rupture or departure from a community. Everyone's different, but some people will want to jump to find a new community, get settled somewhere new, get in a new church as fast as possible because they feel like they've got to bridge that gap. But I, I feel like what, ha what has felt important for me personally and what I've encouraged others to do in the immediate aftermath is to leave some space, some unhurried space to experience and honor the grief and the loss because we do damage to our souls if we don't leave space to just bear witness to the loss and don't hurry, don't hurry onto the next thing, the next community, the next job. There's real beauty in taking the time we need to grieve. And that's, that's going to look a little bit different person to person, but we tend to hurry past the pain of it in order to find some stability. And I think we need to learn, and it's a shared responsibility. We in the body of Christ need to learn how to hold that grief together um, and bear witness, bear witness to one another's stories. And that feels critical in the, in the early stages, especially. And we're in a, I feel like cultural kind of stew that tries to move away from painful experience as fast as possible. Mm -hmm. And so doing that, it's almost too like a radical act against this desire to numb out and mm -hmm. just push forward. And really, like you said, it does damage to the soul. What you ignore in that rupture then will come back to hurt you later. It's like un not treating a wound properly, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And not to say people, our story is, my story is one. We, we happened to find uh, a church community uh, a year or so after we left the church and that, that felt pretty, that felt pretty fast for us, but that's not, obviously that's not going to be the case for a lot of folks. And it just takes time. It takes time. You may not find another community soon and it may be best that you don't. And so I think people need to give themselves permission to enter into just some of that loss and be slow to put those pieces back together with regards to community faith again. Yeah, that's good. Now this is switching gears a little bit, but had writing always been something you were passionate about or did these experiences really empower that? Because personally, and I've told you this, like you're incredibly articulate, you're pointed, your ability to see the, the issues. I don't know. You, how you uncover what's there and the way you word it is so helpful and so articulate that I'm just wondering, have you always had a passion for writing or did this really fuel it on? Yeah, I, I would say writing has really ramped up for me in the last half decade. It, it was prior to that, while I was in pastoral ministry and finishing seminary, it was something I enjoyed, but just on the side, occasionally I enjoyed writing either a blog or a reflection. It's become something I've, I've been more, become more passionate about in recent years. And, and yeah, I think just with the dynamics of what's been going on in the church, it has prompted me to write a lot more deliberately and to participate in the broader conversation in that way. So yeah, it's, it is a recent thing for me. And my wife, KJ, obviously she's a published author. She's further down the road 
mm-hmm. in terms of she's a prolific writer herself. I learned a ton from her. It's been a joy. It's been really fun to dream and write together and get feedback on each other's writing. Yeah. It, it's fun to have that team dynamic too with my wife. So that's been great. Yeah. Well, then as you look at the landscape of the church, God's people, not its you know structures or buildings, what would you say is something you'd want Christians or followers of Jesus to reimagine about what it looks like to follow after him right now? Yeah, I think here's where I might just sound like a knockoff of Eugene Peterson because he's it's not one of my he's one of my heroes, and I've tried to read everything he's ever written. But a lot of if you've read a lot of Eugene, a lot of what he says repeatedly is, "I want to give pastors new imagination for what it means to pastor." And I think when we think about giving Christians imagination for the church, I, I think that's inseparable from giving Christians imagination or reimagining what it means to be a pastor and pastors need need to do this reimagining. But I think the church at large, especially the American church needs to join in reimagining what pastoring is and what we should look for and what we should expect. I think those two go hand in hand because it's hard to just reimagine church without reimagining those who are responsible to, to lead it. And so I, I think a lot about pastoral reimagination. Yeah. What are the things you would reimagine about it? That's enough. Give me some specifics. Yeah. Even as we use the the word reimagination, it's funny because I think a lot of what probably needs to happen more and more in the American setting is not so much reimagining, but returning to what I would say an ancient view and vision of the pastor is um, as the shepherd. And to look to those in spiritual authority as shepherds and not spokesmen, not gifted, charismatic communicator, communicators, even though many are, of course, but to really reimagine what we're looking for when we're identifying pastors as shepherds. And to give just a little bit more on that, I love to think about the vision and picture and meaning of a shepherd, not merely as a personality or as, but as a reflection of inward character. So I think a shepherd is someone whose character forms their ministry and forms their presence in community and, and forms their teaching and preaching. I don't think we can separate shepherd from character and formation and substance. And that feels really important to me when I think about pastoring. I feel like that's something too, that Part of how we got to the place that a lot of churches are in is because we stopped focusing character. Yeah, yeah. And it's hard to point fingers as to whose fault, but I think we can probably agree that a lot of what's happened is we presume character. When we step into churches, we say they're in leadership, they have this authority, they have this title, they have these gifts, and we presume character. And I think what we're learning today is I don't know that we can presume that anymore. Hmm. It's really sad to to acknowledge that, but I don't know that we can presume character anymore. I think we can assume the best of leaders if we're visiting or getting to know leaders well in the new stages. That's fine, but we actually need to learn to practice discernment more than anything, rather than presuming when we're dealing with people in uh, leadership and spiritual authority. We need to learn how to practice discernment. How do you do that 
in a system that's designed to just assume the pastors got the right opinion or it was just clearly, I feel like there's this inherent, oh, they're my pastor or they're the leadership or they're the elders. Therefore, I'm really just going to believe their narrative or their understanding. How does someone begin to practice that discernment? Right. Yeah. And, and here's where we're, we're getting it right, right away at one of those tension points where it might be easy to enter cynical. And yes, I'm not inviting or asking anyone to enter those settings or a new church with cynicism, but, but we do need to enter with discern, discernment. There's no quick, easy answer to that question, Michael, <laughs> as far as how do we determine and discern who's real? Are our are, are leaders trustworthy hmm. or are they lacking? integrity. And unfortunately, I think that the truth is it often takes time to discern that. Um, a lot of those character issues are well concealed in the beginning and leaders and organizations often make great first impressions. So there are some things, there are some indicators we can watch out for, but I would start and end with paying attention to how you experience a pastor's presence or a leader's presence. Well, that's really good. What are you experiencing about their presence in relationship interpersonally, irregardless of how skilled and charismatic and gifted they may be? Uh, behind a pulpit, what are you experiencing about their presence? I think we can start to uncover a lot if we're willing to patiently discern presence instead of personality or skills. That's really good, man. Jeez. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) I'm just like, that's, it's making, it's just clicking back to so many other instances. So that's really clarifying. What then do you think is maybe a misconception about the Jesus way that most Christians carry? Yeah, I saw that question. And I don't know that I would blanket anything with most Christians, but I would certainly say there are, I'm going to stick with our context in, uh, in the U.S. There's certainly a perception out there in a lot of the American church that says we should be looking for fruit that looks like prosperity, that looks when Christianity is flourishing the evidence will be in the outward, external places like numbers and size and growth and lights and cameras. We marry the idea of prosperity and, and businesses and Hollywood and bring it into the church so easily. Even without using that language, we just do. We equate those things. And I think there's so much more work to do and thinking about, I think when Christianity is flourishing, regardless of the setting, we should be looking for deeper receptivity to pain and suffering. That's fruit. And that's very different fruit. When, how do you even, how do you even measure that? But we're getting, we're starting to get to character formation. We're starting to get to people who are being changed often through pain and suffering. And I think that ought to be reflected in a church, in a community, if Christianity is viable in in that setting. So rather than paying attention to numbers and growth or lights and cameras production, I'm very curious when I step into a community, what their receptivity to pain and suffering is and their attention and attunement to the margins and looks like rather than the other stuff. Yeah, that's a beautiful shift. That would really change the dynamic of what it would mean to our church buildings and 
our budgets and reorienting where our, yeah, wouldn't it? Yeah. And the word receptivity feels really important to me, not just receptivity to pain and suffering, but I think it's an antidote or it's a different way of existing in our culture rather than fear. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's so easy to align ourselves around fear in the body of Christ and to fear what's out there, to fear what might enter our doors, mm-hmm. to fear the other and to other people, to other them, if you know what that means. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I just find the idea of receptivity to be deeply Christian, that Christians ought to be the most hospitable, receptive, compassionate people to those around us, to our communities, to our neighbors. And we shouldn't fear the what our neighbor looks like, uh, what our neighbor smells like, what our neighbor sounds like. We should be embodying hospitality. And hospitality is a state of the soul. It's a reflection of the soul. It's not just putting on an entertainment show. It's a reflection of what's in our hearts. Now, as someone who writes a lot about pointing out kind of structures and issues, like where do you see hope blooming in the lives of just Jesus followers? Like where's hope for you? Where does that get stirred most for you, right? Yeah, I I do think there is a real swell of followers of Jesus, many of them folks who are coming out of rupture experiences, many of them coming out of abusive settings, who are forming a growing voice that feels new. And I think there's a new era, maybe, of leadership that is bubbling under the surface and and starting to be revealed in in our our context here in the U.S. and that gives me a ton of hope because I think there's a growing number of voices who are doing this work of reimagination. And I think there's a growing amount of unity around some of these non-negotiables like we're talking about. I think that there's a growing swell of folks who are saying, we can't do institutional loyalty anymore if it means that abuse persists. We won't do that. We won't do that anymore, Um, but we will follow Jesus. And so we're trying to dream and pray and discern the way forward. And I feel like there's a swell of fun juice followers who are entering into that journey here in our context. And that gives me a lot of hope. Yeah. I think you're one of them, man. Just the way that you've chosen to step into that place. And like I said to you, you articulate the truth of what is broken, but you don't give in to the cynicism that allows you to give up too quickly. It's like you, your writing to me has really invited me to enter that grieving space and to do it well. And so I'm glad that yours is a voice of hope and just I'm grateful to it. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, I really appreciate that. It's a joy to, to, just, to just be a voice engaging with other voices. And I really, I find so much life and the, the conversation happening right now in the digital world. Thank you so much for listening. We are a brand new podcast and would love if you would help us out by leaving a rating or a review. And if you'd like to support us, we're more than just a podcast. We're a ministry that's looking to help you cultivate a living and vibrant faith through rediscovery, true encounter, and a community marked by joy. Learn more by following us on Instagram or checking out our website today.